good morning, good night, good afternoon, and everything else in between. What's up guys, it's Denny, let's get to the specials. Willie Nelson announced this week that he is canceling the rest of his current tour due to a breathing problem, which is ironic because I would have thought that he stopped touring years ago because his audience developed a listening problem. U.S. soccer has hired not one but two lobbyist firms that counter claims that the U.S. women's national team has paid less than half their male counterparts because what's more American than gender pay gaps and lobbyists? Imagine how much you must have to hate women that you'd rather spend money to convince the public that they're wrong than to actually pay the team the salary they deserve. It's like going out to dinner with a group of people and, you know, you tip, tip the maitre d' for the best table, you tip the waiter for the best service, tip the sommelier for the best wine. Heck, you even go in the back and tip the cook and the bus boys. But then you dine and dash when the check comes. That's right, Jason. I'm looking at you. I see you. Everybody sees you. And here's the thing about that. You may have gone away with a free filet yawn this time, but eventually you'll get stuck with the bill. It was announced this week that the owner of SoulCycle, Equinox, and the Miami Dolphins, Stephen Ross, is hosting a fundraiser for Donald Trump in the Hamptons. New Yorkers were outraged at the news and pledged to cancel their gym memberships. Meanwhile, in Miami, people shrugged and was like, we've been boycotting the Dolphins for years. Guys, the Premier League is back this weekend, which means morning drinking of beer is no longer taboo. Hallelujah. Everybody knows that there are only three acceptable occasions when drinking beer before 9 a.m. is socially acceptable, and they are, in no particular order, the Premier League, Irish funerals, and early morning flights, except if you live in Wisconsin, and then it's fair game 24-7, 365. And finally, Warner Brothers is releasing a 38-disc box set of the entire Woodstock Festival called Woodstock 50, Back to the Garden, a definitive archive that will feature full performances, crowd noise, and announcements. Critics are raving that it answers all the unanswerable questions from Woodstock, well except for who your biological father is. My name's Denny Gallagher and you are listening to Later. Live from New York. You are listening to the sometimes glamorous, always cantankerous, borderline magnanimous audio art of the new James Brown. Move over, Charlie Brown. There's a new kid in town. Whether it's 5 o'clock while you are or not, you better take your shot because a later Friday big show is coming in hot. Welcome on into later. Thank you so much for joining us on a Friday. Big show. National Book Day edition? That's right. Apparently, to, you know, last week was National Beer Day. We did that whole thing. We had, you clearly heard me try to consume. Shout out to Summer Shandy. I'm trying to get them to eventually sponsor this pod. And then spill it all over everything. Thank God it didn't get over everything. We're back. We're still in operation this week. But I just wanted to take the time to, you know, shout out some books that I've been reading this summer. As always, going to start off, and they don't pay me for the advertising, they pay me to produce their podcast, but Nights in White Castle by Steve Russian, coming out August 20th. We've been hyping it over on the Ball and Chimp podcast, guys. I'm like three quarters of the way through the book. It's great. It's great. Steve's, Steve's always a great writer, and he really... Nobody quite does nostalgia like Steve Russian, as so many people have written before. But what's really cool about this book is because I know him and kind of know how, how his brain operates and, and his his vocal patterns, it kind of sounds like he's talking right to you, which 
which I know like all writers have their writing tone, but so many few people can write like they talk. I think it's a really underrated skill, and he does that beautifully in this book, and it's just a great coming-of-age of story, and I really think that you guys are going to enjoy it. That's number one. That's book number one. So go out later this month. Please buy Knights in White Castle. It's, it's tremendous. The two other books that I've read this summer are Wayne Goldman's Adventures in the Screen Trade. Great insight into Hollywood, into screenwriting. That's a that's a hobby of mine that I'd love to get paid for one day. But anyway, phenomenal. Really kind of takes you inside Hollywood. Takes a because I mean you got the guy that wrote Butch Cassidy and Sundance Kid. He wrote Princess Bride. All that stuff breaking down the business from you. And he wrote this book in the 80s, and it's amazing how much of it still holds up today about stars, about opening movies, just the process of going from my document on a computer to the big screen. So that was very cool. And then the the book I read at the beginning of the summer, Tom Hanks' is Uncommon Type, and some stories, just a collection of short stories by Tom Hanks. Pretty cool. Obviously, has played some incredible roles over the years. So the three books I've read this summer... In the process of reading Knights in White Castle, loved Adventures in the Screen Trade by William Goldman, and also loved Uncommon Type by Tom Hanks. So National Book Day, three books, there you go. Go to your local bookstore. I don't know how many of you have bookstores within walking distance anymore, but there's some great ones in the New York City area. I know here in Jersey City, we got a great one called Word that I go to a lot, and I think the, the 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 real genius behind a modern bookstore is how they've incorporated the coffee hangout element to it. I think that's a brilliant thing that Barnes and Noble did. I remember the bookstores I went to growing up didn't have like the coffee hangout, read the book here element. And I gotta say, it's probably been one of the better innovations in the book industry because they gotta compete with your Amazons, they gotta compete with your Barnes and Nobles, not to go all main theme from you've got mail or shop around the corner but you know having having those extra amenities is a nice place to read your book get some work done so happy national book day guys and like i said knights in white castle adventures in screen trade and uncommon type steve russian william goldman tom hanks three great americans on the show today though we have stephen hyden of uprocks has the unbelievable new podcast documentary break stuff, the story of Woodstock 99. And I gotta be honest with you, I'm 25 years old and I was six when Woodstock 99 happened. I did not know the story. I mean, like, yes, I knew that it was a disaster, but when, when something's a disaster, you don't always hear the whole story. Hearing the role that Woodstock 69, the role that Woodstock 94, had in people doing Woodstock 99, how it didn't really relate to, I guess you could call them Gen Xers, but that whole time, I thought it was very interesting, uh, the idea of it being in Rome, New York, and that whole thing, and if you watch some YouTube clips from Woodstock 99, I gotta say, it looks kind of crazy, The it looked very impersonal, obviously a ton of crime happened, uh, riots, burnings, robberies, all all, all the fix in, in, in an area where you couldn't get out. It was really, not not really was, it was a tragedy, uh, all mixed up in an unorganized music festival. So to hear that, and then with the events of, or the news of last week, 
Woodstock 99, or no, Woodstock 50, excuse me. It was a really interesting time to talk to Steven and, and, and to talk about this project, uh, Woodstock 99, and just the problems that nostalgia can face, uh, the problems with unorganized festivals. Almost at, at this point, it's a good thing that Woodstock 50 got canceled because once again, it seemed pretty unorganized. And quite frankly, prior to doing research for that interview, I really had no idea Woodstock 94 ever happened. People always think about the 69 one, and then occasionally you hear rumblings about 99. It's good to hear the truth about the Woodstock organizing committee and how it's been romanticized over the years. I know that's like it's been a big talking point lately. And it was great to get into that with, with Steven. Steve, Steven's great. You know his work from Rolling Stone. You know his work from Grantland. And now he's with Up Rocks. That's coming up in a little bit. But right now, I want to get into my song of the week. Every week, we scour the aisles of my local record store to find our song of the week. And this week, our main track comes out of Philadelphia from a band called The Messengers. Popular on the East Coast, popular on the West Coast, popular all around. The track is Anna, and here's a little bit. Be sure to check out these guys on tour. They put on a great show. And now to another guy that knows a lot about music. The podcast is called Break Stuff. It can be found on Luminary in conjunction with The Ringer. Without any further ado, let's get to my conversation with Stephen Hyden. It's actually perfect timing to have you on in light of... Uh, Woodstock 50 being canceled officially yesterday. Just some opening remarks about your thoughts on that and nostalgia being an an enemy that that certainly victimized 1999 as well as Woodstock 50. Yeah, I mean, I was following the Woodstock 50 story fairly closely, and I think there are some parallels that you could draw to Woodstock 99, just in terms of the planning being very much on the fly. You know, it doesn't seem like it was super well organized. And yeah, I think this is the difference between Woodstock and a lot of the big music festivals now. Like if you look at Coachella or Bonnaroo, you know, these festivals are always on the same grounds. You know, they have established staff, you know, they have the infrastructure in place. Uh, you know, they're not trying to find like a venue every year you know, to, to, to get this done. Uh, so there's just a level of organization with those festivals that, uh, that's in place that isn't true for, for Woodstock. And, um, you know, the difference obviously between Woodstock 99 and Woodstock 50 is that Woodstock 50 was canceled before it happened. And Woodstock 99 was a festival that was almost canceled like several times, but it was allowed to move forward. And you saw the consequences of that when the festival actually happened. You know, there were uh, problems throughout the festival, uh, you know, dealing with security and 
you know, access to water and waste management. Uh, so that's something that, that we dive into uh, pretty in-depth uh, in, in the show. Now, you, you talked about the whole location part. You dive into this a little bit in the podcast, but uh, just kind of discuss uh, the difference between original Woodstock being in, like, the now Bethel Woods area and being in Rome, New York. Was it a case of organization, or was it something else? Back in '99, the idea was that you know they wanted to have a location that could be fortified against people that would try to you know basically get in for free. You know, because that was an issue. Obviously, at the, at the original Woodstock, you know, people just gay crashed at that festival. It was also something that happened a lot at, at Woodstock '94. So in '99, they 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 wanted a location where you know people would be able to break in and get in for free. So they ended up at this. Uh, Air Force Base in Rome, New York, uh, that was basically, you know, a huge runway where they used to land, uh, you know, huge airplanes. And uh, it was definitely a site that you couldn't break into, but it also, you know, wasn't a very sort of Woodstock type environment. It was, yeah. it was basically asphalt and no trees, and uh, it was just compounded by how hot it was that weekend. Uh, so, yeah, just the idea that Woodstock would be at a military base, I think, is sort of a, a funny, I don't know, maybe funny is not the right word, but definitely sort of an ironic twist uh, to the Woodstock story. I mean, Watson's Glen is more of a sort of venue that you would associate with Woodstock. You know, it is more of like sort of like a nature-oriented venue, um, but apparently there were other issues hmm. with that venue as well. I mean, I did... I didn't report on Woodstock 50, so I don't know right. all the details about Woodstock 50. Um, but but certainly in terms of 99, it was because they didn't want to have gay crashing. You know, that's how that's why they ended up at a military base. I love talking to people that that create stuff on on this podcast, especially other people that create podcasts. What drew you to want to cover this story outside of the anniversary? It's always been a story that I that I was fascinated by. I mean, I remember when it happened, obviously. Uh, I mean, it's a huge disaster. So, I mean, I think disasters are always really fun to to learn about. You know, I, I tend to think that failure is more interesting than success, at least when it comes to, you know, doing a big journalistic project like this. So it just seemed like uh, a topic where you could explore just the facts of what happened there, and it would be a very interesting story. And then there's all these sort of larger thematic things that you can that you can attach to it. You know, the fact that it happened at the end of the '90s. You know, the '90s being this decade that I think for a lot of people it began with a lot of idealism. Um, you know, sort of creating a sense of equality, certainly between men and women. Uh, you know, racial equality and in all forms of, you know, they're just trying to improve society. And I think there was a feeling maybe in the early 90s that that was happening. And then by the end of the 90s, uh, you know, a lot of that idealism sort of went away. And what's like 99, I think, for a lot of people was a symbol of that, uh, especially, you know, with all of the sexual assault that took place there and how men at the festival really felt emboldened to, uh, you know, say terrible things to women, you know, harass women, and then even grope or even rape women. Um, 
So there's that element. You know, there's all the sort of weird cultural things that uh, happened in 1999. You know, that this was really before the internet kind of took over the media. I mean, the internet existed in 1999, but it wasn't the force that it is now. And it's kind of the end of like the 20th century in that regard. You know, the, it's kind of like the last time that you can imagine, you know, people living in a world like where pe- you're not on your cell phone all the time or you're not online all the time. So thinking about that stuff's really interesting too. So, you know, there's all these different things that you can go off on tangentially from this topic that I think makes it really interesting. I thought in the first episode that you can check out on Luminary, the podcast is break stuff. I thought it was interesting in the first episode how uh, one of the contributors that you had said it was it was in essence the end of the 90s grunge era. I was wondering your thoughts on that take and how Woodstock 99 left left a, a legacy on that entire era and really uh, the genre of rock and roll as we moved into the mid-2000s and then the 2010s. Yeah, I mean, I think like grunge, I think, was already over by the time of Woodstock 99. And I think really with alternative rock, it kind of goes back to 1994. I look at that as being the turning point or like the beginning of the end or maybe the end. You know, I mean, that was the year that Kurt Cobain died. That was the year that like Pearl Jam really started to retreat the mainstream. And, you know, there were successful grunge bands after that. But starting in the mid-90s, that's like when like the new metal stuff really started to emerge. And by the end of the 90s, like that was the sound of mainstream rock. You know, it was Corn, Limp Biscuit, Rage Against the Machine. This sort of hybrid of hip-hop and hard rock that was much more aggressive. And certainly in the case of like Limp Biscuit, there was an element of almost like 80s style hair metal to it, at least in terms of its attitude. You know, know, like like Nirvana and Pearl Jam were in many ways like progressive bands, like like politically. You know, they talked about abortion rights and they talked about equality for women. And there was this idea that like, if you're a male rock star, you shouldn't be this sort of macho guy that is just trying to have sex with groupies, you know, mm-hmm. which was very much a position of, you know, how you look at people like Axl Rose or Brett Michaels or Vince Neil, like those type of guys in the 80s. And the early 90s rock stars were a different kind of rock star. And then by the end of the 90s, those new metal bands, they sort of reasserted what rock stars were before grunge. So they almost like sort of undid everything that those bands did. So I think in that way, you could look at Woodstock 99 as the culmination of that, you know, cause it's hard to imagine like a lot of those early nineties alt rock bands playing a festival like that or mm-hmm. having that kind of vibe, you know, it, it was very much, you know, about shirtless guys pushing people around, you know, like that was a big part of that festival. Uh, so I think it does act as a symbol in a lot of ways, but for how the culture changed fairly quickly over the course of the decade. One of the really cool things I I think that's part of this podcast is talking about the dangers of nostalgia. And I I know that nostalgia played a big role in all of the Woodstocks, but especially 1999. You could just comment on the dangers of 
nostalgia and how maybe uh, not buying into the hype of the original could have altered the destiny of this festival. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the thesis like statements of this show is that you know Woodstock '99 wasn't an isolated incident. That if you look at the history of the original Woodstock, that a lot of the same problems that existed in '99 also existed in 1969. You know, the 1969 festival it was declared a disaster area. You know, there were shortages of water and food. There were uh, you know there was a huge rainstorm that created like tons of mud. Uh, there were uh, there was even, there was a, there was a small scale riot on Saturday night where this anarchist group burned down a bunch of stands. There was almost a near mass electrocution incident, you know, like where all these people uh, would have been killed uh, because there were there, there were there were problems with with the electric the electric wiring at the festival. I think it's safe to say that if it were not for just sheer luck the original Woodstock could have ended up being a much worse experience than it ended up being. And it's really only because they made this movie about it that came out in 1970, this three-hour documentary that became one of the most famous uh, rock concert movies of all time. You know, that's the Woodstock that people remember. You know, they think that the festival was like the movie, but the movie is essentially you know, a whitewash of the event. You know, it, 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 it's presented in a way that makes the festival look much cooler than it actually was or much more profound or much more fun than it actually was. And when you look ahead to 99, I think the idea that, you know, you're going to get hundreds of thousands of people in one place and you're not going to have much infrastructure and you're not going to have much security and... And basically just going to have people kind of be on their own in this space. You know, people got a false sense of security because of the mythology of the original Woodstock. They thought, well, that one turned out great. Why wouldn't this turn out great? When the reality is, is that the first one didn't turn out that great. <laughs> and because of all these, because, a lot of, because of a lot of these deficiencies in planning that existed. So I think that's where the danger comes in. When people don't really know the history of something, and they just sort of buy into the idea of it. Um, and I think if people knew the history more, they would understand the mistakes that were made in the past. And they, you know, and then hopefully you try not to repeat those mistakes. So I want to get into a little bit of how you made this project. Just kind of take me through like a timeline of when you thought of, of the project and uh, trying to book whoever you could get in, in contact with straight up through when you knew that you could make a series out of this? Uh, so I pitched the idea almost a year ago. It was like at the end of August of 2018. And I looked at the email that I sent to The Ringer. Because it was originally, I pitched it to The Ringer and my editor there, Sean Fennessy. And I looked at the email recently and like the email is like pretty much what the show is. Like I, I had a pretty clear vision of like what I wanted it to be you know, way before I did anything with it. I pitched it to him and he was interested in it. And then we sort of went back and forth for, you know, about three months just talking about it. And then I, I, I think it was like in mid December or so of 2018. It was, I got the green light to do it. So I started actually booking interviews in early January, that, that's when I first started emailing people. And I had a list of people that I wanted to talk to. 
that I'd been doing research on uh, on on the event, and so I knew a lot of the major players, and you know, I knew I wanted to talk to some of the bands, the promoters, you know, attendees, all that kind of stuff. And um, I ended up working with this production company called Neon Hum, which is like a pretty well-known production company that does a lot of podcasts. So they were, you know, they helped put it together uh, as well as there was a, a guy from The Ringer named Noah Malale. He was one of the producers. So we had like about a, I think it was like a four-person team that worked on it. And they helped a lot on the production side and I was involved in booking the interviews. And we did interviews for about four months from like January to April or so. And I did a few interviews after that, but the bulk of the interviews were done in about a four month span. And we talked to about, uh, you know, more than, I think it was more than two dozen people. It's probably between like, you know, 25 and 30 people, um, in that time. And, and then I spent a couple months writing scripts for the show and then recorded my narration and, yeah, then we launched in July. I actually just finished recording narration for the last four episodes, so um, I'm I'm pretty much done at this point nice. with it. Um, but yeah, it was about. I mean, if, if 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 you consider like the pitch, the beginning of the project, it took about a year. Mm. And did you know from the jump that you wanted to tell the story in kind of chronological order because it it, it does seem to go that way. Well, I mean, it was my outline. Yeah. So, you know, I, so yeah, it was me. I mean, it was my idea. Like I said, I, I sent an email to Sean Fennessy at the ringer saying what my vision of the show was and what my vision was, is was, was pretty much how it turned out. I mean, I was like, I want to start with Limp Biscuit. I was, because I think that is the, I think that's the thing that most people remember about Woodstock 99. So I'm going to use that as an entry point. And then I want to talk about the mythology of Woodstock. And I want to talk about the planning, and then we'll get into the festival, you know, and proceed from there. So, again, like how I saw it then was, was pretty much how it turned out. And if you could kind of put a bow on what you've learned from telling this story, what would it be? Well, I mean, I wanted to do a scripted podcast. You know, I, I, uh, I've done podcasting before. I had my own show called Celebration Rock that was... Uh, on for three years and we did about 120 episodes and that was like a talk show type podcast and I really love doing that and I'm going to be doing other shows like that in the future but I wanted to do something that was more ambitious uh, where you know I would be reporting and I'd be writing and I'd tell a story and you know because I loved um, what what, uh, Leon Nafok did with uh, his uh, show Slow Burn mm. that was on Slate I, I love Slow Burn and I also loved Karina Longworth's podcast you must remember this if those were like my two big you know probably influences for this show where I was like I love what they did I want to try to do my own version of that so I, for me it was really just about doing that and, and so I guess that's the thing that I learned that I could do something like this and and I, and I definitely want to do it again at some point. I really like the medium. And, um, you know, I, I just look forward to exploring it. I think there's a lot of potential with it uh, for, for, you know, telling stories. Uh, so, yeah, I had a lot of fun cool. doing this project. 
The podcast is Break Stuff. You can find it on Luminary in conjunction with The Ringer. Steven, thank you so much for the time, man. We really appreciate it. Thanks. Thanks for having me. All right, that's our show. Big thanks to Stephen Hyden for stopping by. Great conversation. Uh, thank you so much to anyone who's been listening to us and just out here spreading the word. Thank you very much. We've got a big show next week. Gaslight Anthem drummer Benny Horowitz is stopping by. We it, It's a long conversation. You guys are going to want to buckle in. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, questions for any future mailbag, please email them at laterpodcasts at gmail.com. Please be sure to rate, subscribe, review, do all the typical podcast things. You know the drill by now. If you want more content, be sure to follow me at Denny underscore Gallagher on Twitter and Denny Gallagher on Instagram. Later podcast on Instagram. All of the stuff. Follow. If you like this at all, just follow. We'll have more stuff coming out your way. Once again, thank you so much for listening. And until next time, later. Later.